Millions of despairing men, women and little children. Victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. You cannot shake hands with a clenched fist. Produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. We're not saying that planet Earth is coming to an end. We're saying that planet Earth is about to be refurbished, spaded under, and have another chance to serve as a garden for another civilization. Most of the people in here are just your reflections. They're your mistakes. 1776 will commence again if you try to take our firearms. One million of the planet's eight million species are threatened. You are what you repeatedly do. Therefore, excellence ought to be a habit, not an act. Your lives and the credibility of the United Nations is at stake. Epstein didn't kill himself. The reason this is such an interesting time is not only because we're on the threshold of the end of this civilization. They're trying to take you out with bullshit. The experience of the past two years has proven beyond doubt that no nation can appease the Nazis. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. In the language of the US Department of Defense, these are unidentified aerial phenomena. Roswell's a very interesting place with a lot of people that would like to know what's going on. Uh, there is very compelling evidence that we, uh, we may not be alone. This is the Garden of Doom. Welcome everyone into Garden of Doom, and this week we are welcoming back one of our prior guests and collaborators. This is Derek Jones from the Midnight Myth Podcast, which he does with his wife, Laurel, the Greek mythology episode. Now, out there somewhere, there's a second Greek mythology episode that was actually live and videoed. There's video of it with me and Jimmy the Greek. Um, and thank God I did the show with Derek and Laurel because it really prepared me for, for that one that I could hold my own with the Greek himself. Maybe even though a little bit more than him, I'm not, I'm not sure. He said he's not particularly proud of how he did on it, but I, I think that he did okay. Uh, and for that reason, he seems to not be dropping into the audio verse just yet, but one day it'll pop up out there. But I thank them for, if I sounded good, I thank them. If I sounded bad, I blame them. No, I'm kidding. So <laughs> Derek also, first of all, hi, Derek. How are you? Hey, I'm great. Thanks for having me. Great to see you again. Yeah, you too. Derek is going solo this week. Well, me. Um, he also does a podcast called The Wheel of Ka. And that is mostly, if not exclusively, dedicated to the works of Stephen King and all the surrounding media around it. So if you're a Stephen King fan, you definitely want to check that out. Um, I strongly recommend Midnight Myth too. It's sort of like it's sort of like Garden of Doom if you were in college, you know, or grad school. So, uh, you know, if you're looking for something smarter uh, and maybe more focused and less meanderings, Midnight Myth is for you. Um, Laurel's podcast—I forgot the name of it. Basically, she tells bedtime stories, but in a sort of like sort of spooky stories, but in a in a 
comforting way. Almost like for those of you who are old enough to get the reference, when Three Men and a Baby, when I think it was Tom Selleck was saying, it doesn't matter what you read to the baby, it's the tone. And he was reading about a Muhammad Ali boxing match and the baby fell asleep. So all that aside, that explains our, our history, how we met. I'm not even really sure. I'm, I'm sure it was through Twitter. Um, it was. I think yeah. Twitter comments, I said hi, you said hi, and then somehow we became friends and now we podcast with each other. Right. Now we're best friends. So, so there you go. Um, I, I say that to everyone. I'm, I'm a best friend. Um, I don't want to slut shame, but I'm a slut uh, with, with best friends. Um, so anyway, that aside. So originally when we spoke, Derek said, how do you feel about me doing a show on proto-mythology? Now, me, in my head, this is a secret, don't tell anyone, like, I don't know that, what that means. I guess it's animism or maybe like, you know, the origins of mythology. Maybe it has something to do with Indo-European languages or something and sort of the source myth. I'm like, whatever it is, sure, sounds great. And then he says, to be clear, so I'm already, you know, living in the cloud. He says, to, to be clear, I'd like to chat about the mythic poetic thought writ large. Now, I use writ large all the time, and I say that because I assume that most people don't know what it means, so I sound like a smarty pants. Um, but mythic poetic thought writ large, you know, it could be what I just said. It could be something completely different. So we are both in for a treat. You and I, audience, we are, com we are both coming into this completely unarmed together, and we'll see. So Derek... What is proto-mythology and what is poetic mythic thought writ large? So I first came across the term mythopoetic and mythopoetic thought in a class I took in Temple University in Philadelphia in the ancient Near East. And we were rereading and discussing the Epic of Gilgamesh. And that is where the professor introduced me for the first time to mythopoetic thinking, and he called it pre-logical or pre-logos, uh, which would be the Greek word for logic, where we get the modern word for logic. And I think the best way to understand it is first, I love two subjects primarily. I love history and I love philosophy. Those are the two things that I am the most interested in. And through the study of, in particular, ancient history, you have to engage with the myths because those are some of the only relics or stories that we have from a lot of different places. So the question is, what really is a myth? How are myths made? Where do myths come from? And what type of epistemological system can we put myths into? So epistemological, kind of a big word. And I think it's, it's useful to start our discussion kind of at the ancient Greeks. So the ancient Greeks did something very different in how they approached knowledge. They created this thing called philosophy. Philosophy literally translates to the love of wisdom, and they differentiated between two different schools of thought. On one hand, there would be myth or mythos. On the other hand, there'd be logic or logos. And they kind of put these two in two different camps. Now, if you're an ancient Greek philosopher, there are certain schools of philosophy that you need to learn, starting with metaphysics, which metaphysics deals with questions of reality. What is real? How do we know what's real? Once you have a framework on what you think reality is, then you have an epistemology. Epistemology is the study of knowledge itself. It asks the question, how do you know what you know? And from epistemology, then you get into 
ethics or morality. So now that we know what's real, we know how we know things, now we can say what's right and wrong. And then finally, aesthetics, which is to understand beauty and understand um, the concepts of what it means to make art, what it means to have beauty. Now, the ancient Greeks looked at logos, the ancient Greek philosophers, I should say, and this is true even from before Socrates. So ancient Greek thought is separated into two main camps, the pre-Socratics and the post-Socratics. That's how important Socrates is. The pre-Socratics, nah, not so great, doesn't really hold up that well. And then Socrates came and shook everything up. Was Solon real? From the, oh, I'm sorry. Was Solon real? Is he? Would he be pre-Socratic? Uh, yeah, so Solon is definitely, from what we can tell, a real dude. Uh, Solon is more of a political figure. So Solon um, creates the laws and systems that go on to form Athenian democracy. Would, so Solon is a, like, he's more of a, a political figure than a philosophical figure as far as I'm aware. Would Homer be considered philosophical or something different altogether? Ah, Homer would be a relic of mythopoetic thinking. Ah. So... Yeah, so Homer would not be considered a philosopher at all. He'd be considered someone that operates in mythopoetic thought. It's worth noting that in the Logos versus Mythos, the ancient Greek philosophers, for the most part, looked down on Mythos. They did not think it was the way to understand the world. Flash forward a couple, you know, thousand years to the mid-20th century. And in the mid-20th century, in Western academic discourse, there was a revitalization and interest in two different historical eras. One, ancient Egypt, the other, the ancient Near East. The ancient Near East, for those that don't study ancient history, that's the Middle East today, but it's called the ancient Near East. And they started looking at the myths and legends, and <clears throat> pardon me, these two scholars, hold on, I wrote down their names. They're called the Frankfurts, I forget their first name. In 1949, they coined the term mythopoetic thinking in a book called The Intellectual Adventure of Ancient Man, an essay on speculative thought in the ancient Near East. And what they were, they were anthropologists, so they were looking at it from an anthropological point of view. And what they said was, if you look at ancient thought compared to modern thought, ancient thought allows for contradiction. It is pre-logical. Two things that could not possibly be true at the same time, ancient thought believes to be true. And that is the characteristic of mythopoetic thinking. Pre-logical things that could not be the same are the same. If that seems confusing, I'll give you a concrete example of mythopoetic thinking. It has to do with the mythology around the ancient Egyptian pharaoh or king. When the pharaoh is alive on earth, the pharaoh is the god Horus. When the pharaoh dies and gets mummified and taken to the ancient Egyptian afterworld, the pharaoh then becomes the god Osiris. So you are king and you are god at the same time while alive, and then when you die, you become another god. Every single pharaoh is both a god and a king simultaneously. To us, modern people, we'd say, you can't be two things at once. You're either a king or a god. You can't both, and if you are a god, how do you transform from one type of god to another? But in mythopoetic thinking, that's completely okay. Hmm. It's okay to have these contradictory things. Well, I, I, I'm sense. not sure that that much has changed, to be frank. I mean, it's not, I mean, well, in North Korea right now, you have the same situation. I mean, obviously, that is a sheltered state, police state. But also, the Dalai Lama operates very much the same way. You've got the spirit of the Dalai Lama that, that operates within a man. I know it's a little bit different with popes, but it's not that far crossing. Um, 
and what what's Jesus? I mean, I know that right now he's you know not not walking amongst us at least to our knowledge, but I mean, what, what's the whole Father, Son, and Holy Spirit thing? So I mean. I'm not sure that much has changed, to, to be frank. We, we just, <laughs> I mean, it, we, we see it every day. Uh, in, uh, there was actually a top executive, I think it was yesterday. So folks, by the way, I'm recording this on August 6th. Uh, so I'm talking about August 5th, 2022. Uh, major executive, I'm not going to say it in case the quote was wrong. I'm definitely paraphrasing, but basically uh, called an entire form of entertainment something created by the devil and they didn't want it on their platform. This is a huge multimedia international conglomerate that all of you have heard of. Um, and it's a media form that while not everyone enjoys necessarily, you've all heard of it, you've all seen it. Um, so, and you probably never thought that it was created by the devil any more than a million other things. But so I'm not so sure that we've advanced so much past, past the ancients. Uh, maybe just looking back, that those are the books that survive, uh, you know. But anyway, I don't, that is one of my famous digressions. You were doing an excellent job of doing this in an orderly, uh, professorial way. Well, you know, and I think you bring up a really good point because, you know, in the mid-20th century, there was an attempt to say, look how far we've come, look how much we know, look how much better we are than the ancients. And it's very much to look down upon the ancient Near East, look down upon the ancient myths and legends, and dismiss them as totally irrational, contradictory things. I think, to me, I don't look at it that way. I have deep respect for our ancient history. I don't want to study ancient history just to feel good that I don't live in that time. Right. I think ancient people were smart. They had particular challenges. And a lot of those challenges were, how do you organize your knowledge and transmit it from one generation to the other? And that is a really difficult problem for the ancient people to have. One, they don't have writing, or the writing that they have is not incredibly sophisticated, or there's only a select few people that even know how to write. So ancient Egyptian had a written language, but it's really just a scribe caste that knew the language and nobody else does. So if you want to use ancient Egyptian language to teach people how to farm, how to fish, why you're an Egyptian, what it means to be an Egyptian, you can't go to the written word because the average Egyptian doesn't know it. So you codify these things into two different things, myths and poems. That is the mythopoetic. This is where Homer comes in. Because if you put something into a poem, Ancient poems are built around mnemonic devices. The idea is you get a certain rhythm to the words and to the language, and the poet poet is supposed to memorize the poem, but these poems are incredibly long. So you often would forget it, but once you knew the meter and once you knew the sort of gist, you would just plug in what you would know and kind of start to build an adaptation on it. So these myths and legends codified into poems end up being transmitted from person to person, then generation to generation. And inside those, there's the ideas of what it means to be a person alive in this time, how hostile the world is. That's why these gods are so mean and petty, because the world is very hostile and threatening. Life is short and brutal. And if you tick off the gods, they come and get you. Mm -hmm. And what makes Homer unique and what makes Homer um, revolutionary for the time is that Homer did something that nobody else did. He took those poems and he wrote them down. 
And then that formed the literary tradition of ancient Greece that then goes into and formed the literary tradition of ancient Rome. You know, I've often said one of the reasons the Greeks and Romans live so large in our historical memory, I mean, you know, I have a tattoo dedicated to Roman history right here on my arm, as you can see, you know, so I, because I absolutely love Roman history. But one of the reasons they speak to us so clearly is because so much of their literature has survived and they had literature. Right. There's no collection of ancient Persian poems, at least not that I know of. There's no collection of ancient Greek, or I'm sorry, ancient Egyptian poems that I know of. There might exist because I don't know everything. But in ancient Greece and Rome, we have plays, we have poems, we have histories, we have philosophies. And all of these things speak so loudly to us, so they loom really large in our historical memory to date. But that's simply because they were good at writing things down. But Homer... And the Iliad and the Odyssey, what they are trying to transmit is what it means to be an ancient Greek man and how to live now alive in today's, or the archaic Greek age that you know Homer was writing in. And in that, it's very mythopoetic. There's not a lot of um, Greek logos built into that. It's not a philosophy. It's a narrative and a story. And it is these, the stories that end up capturing us. They end up defining us. You know, if you think of mythopoetic that lives on today, you know, you mentioned some things that are kind of pretty bizarre, but some, some things that are really awesome that you know, delve deep into mythopoeticism. You have Star Wars. You have Lord of the Rings. You have almost everything in the Disney animated series and the Disney movies. These all are using mythopoetic structures, mythopoetic thought, and they're telling these stories that can tell us so much about who we are and they can help inform the next generation about what it means to be us right now. And so I think mythopoeticism, while developed as a way to look down on the ancients, I think is, to me, I like to reframe that as a way to celebrate the ancients, ancients and say, that's part of what it means to be a human. We still do it today. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you, it's interesting because uh, there was writing before, but a lot of the first writing was like invoices and receipts. Like, here's how much grain we have in the storehouse. Here's the grain that we sold and was received by Akka, you know, I mean, the city, you know, Acadians, um, you know, and, and, and we got back for, you know, six goats. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm making stuff up, but it was, it was really dry stuff like that. It was the practical stuff. The entertainment came later in the writing though there is that the epic of Gilgamesh which I I guess it's been dated to something like 5,000 years ago or 6,000 years ago which is predates Homer Um, I don't know depending on who you talk to it's about a whole lot of different things I have read the epic of Gilgamesh I have listened to the epic of Gilgamesh I have my own thoughts on it Um, but uh Whatever it is, I, I, you know, poetry ain't my thing, and I obviously missed a lot in it. <laughs> there are a lot of things that other people found to be very important that, uh, you know, I guess I just sort of, you know, glossed through to get to the next fight, like I'm reading a comic book or something. Um, but I don't know, uh, you know, we started with the ancient Greeks, is, is, and it's okay. Like, I'm famous for asking long questions where the answer just might be like, yeah, I don't know anything about that. So are, are we going to talk at all about the Epic of Gil- Gilgamesh or the Mahabharata, or is that, that outside of the scope of uh, your your wheel of Ka? No, I think Epic of Gilgamesh is a great place to talk about it because it was through the study of the Epic of Gilgamesh where I heard the term mythopoetic. Nice. Epic of Gilgamesh is a, is a mythopoetic. Um, 
as far as we know, because all things in ancient history are what we know as of the evidence that we have. So ancient history constantly evolves as new evidence emerges. But as far as we know, to date, it's the oldest written down story. There could have been stories written down before Epic of Gilgamesh that did not survive, but it survives. It's carved into what's called a stele, which is essentially a stone tablet that sits kind of like a monolith. And so everyone that would go by would see it. So the Epic of Gilgamesh, if you're carving it into stone, it's a very important story. And it takes place in a place called Ur, Ur is a really significant ancient Near East um, city. It's significant for two reasons. Ur is the first empire that we know of. So it was the first place. The ancient Near East is a bunch of city-states, and eventually they get codified into empires. Ur was the first one that said, you over there, you owe us taxes, and you do what we say, or we come and we kill you. And so Ur is where we start seeing the transition away from city-states into empires, and the Epic of Gilgamesh is about a character called Gilgamesh. And Laurel and I talk about it in um, a podcast that we do on the Marvel's The Eternals because there's a character called Gilgamesh in it. And Gilgamesh... Not the same the guy. Big, it's not the same guy. <laughs> Very <laughs> disappointing to me. Yeah, he's definitely not the same guy. But you know the, the broad beats of the story is Gilgamesh is a king. He's incredibly powerful. He's a king of Ur. And he's a total tyrant. He's an absolute jerk. Nobody likes him. He brutalizes his people. He rapes women. He's just a terrible bad king. And he's the most powerful man. And that's why he's the king. So he's powerful. He's strong. He's immune to disease. He's got super strength. He's like all of the worst things. Like if you've seen the TV show The Boys, he'd be like Homelander in The Boys. You know, there's like powerful and total jerk and doesn't care does whatever he wants to whoever he wants he's like hercules after a rager in in berserker mode constantly exactly right and the the people are very upset so they pray to the gods and the gods create enkidu and enkidu is created to check the power of gilgamesh and enkidu is a savage there's a lot i mean it's a very long story and there are parts of it that are missing but essentially, Enkidu and Gilgamesh fight, and then at the end of the fight, they tie, they're they tied, and they realize that they're best friends. Right. And now that they're best friends, they go on adventures, and Enkidu dies battling a, a giant called Humumba. I could be mispronouncing that. It's been a while since I read it. And when Enkidu dies, Gilgamesh goes on a quest to find eternal life. The quest is successful in that he finds a rare plant that if he eats this plant, he'll get eternal life, but he loses the plant. He realizes that he's mortal, and then he comes back to Ur, and he decides from there on in, he's going to be a good king, and he's going to dedicate himself to kingship. And Ur then emerges as the most powerful nation of the ancient Near East, and goes on and forms empires. Ur's also significant is Ur is the first time where the king, in this is in history, starts to be associated with godhood. So that it's not enough that you follow the king, you have to worship the king as a god. And this makes sense because Ur is very powerful. So if the king of Ur says, I want that river to go into another direction, the river goes into another direction. If the king goes, I want that forest turned into a city, it becomes a city. If the king says, you shall die, you must die. Am I not a god? <laughs> if I can do these things, am I not Am I not as powerful as the gods? And it is mythopoetic thinking that allows that transition from just king to king and godhood to occur 
because you have to be okay with contradictory things because you literally can't be a king and a god. So all of this is to say that the Epic of Gilgamesh takes place at a very transformative time in ancient Near East history and human history. It's where we start building empires. It's where kings become gods. Gilgamesh is also worshipped as a hero and then as a god in the ancient Near East pantheon. And um, it is a foundational story to establish Ur as the center of the ancient Near East and Ur kingship as the center of godliness. And it is also about understanding morality, mortality, and your role. So King, what happens? Gilgamesh is a bad king. He abuses people. He abuses women. He abuses his subjects. The people pray to the gods and they send a check. And then he goes on these great heroic deeds because heroes have to go on deeds. And in it he loses and he has this quest for immortality that he ultimately does not win. He does not become immortal. And what does he decide to do? Take his kingship duties seriously. So some have theorized that this is also one of the reasons it's so important. It's for kings. Hey, you want to be like Gilgamesh. You want to be a good king. You want to treat your, um, you know, you want to treat your subjects with respect. You don't want to abuse people. You don't want to abuse your authority. Otherwise, the people can send an Inca dude to, you know, counterbalance you. So there's a ton to the Epic of Gilgamesh, and it is one of those places. It establishes a lot of ancient Near East deities, such as Marduk. Um, there's a um, oh my god, I almost said Aphrodite. That's not her name. So uh, Ishtar. Ishtar. Right. Ishtar in Babylonian or Sumerian. It would be Sumerian then. Well, it's actually so, pre-Sumerian, but... Yeah. Well, Ishtar goes to Gilgamesh and is just like, you should marry me. You're the hottest dude out there. And he says no. <laughs> and that's part of the reason that Enkidu dies, because he, you know, he spurns Ishtar, the goddess of love. Right. Um, who... who there is a lot of linguistical links between Ishtar and Aphrodite and Venus. Some suggest that they are the same. all different aspects of the same origin. They have all have the same origin, or they all originate from the same sort of mythic tradition. Right. There's there's a lot of that, and we explore plenty of that. Garden of Doom. And there's probably no reason to go go over that all here. But I'm glad you mentioned it. The, for those of you who are wondering, what does that have to do with me now? I mean. A, while you're listening, B, uh, Ur, when, when one of the first cities it took was Acadia, and the area became known as Uruk for a while. And what's Uruk? Iraq. Uh, so, you know, the, these, these words and these terms and these cities still matter today. Now, it's not the exact same geography, obviously. Uh, a bunch of British guys didn't come in and dra draw the borders, um, but Iraq d d uh, comes from Uruk. Um, there's also some interesting stuff in Gilgamesh. The quest for immortality leads him to the uh, Sumerian version of Noah. Uh, I always It's like Anopeshtesh, something like that. Uh, I'm sure I said it wrong. And, uh, and he finds him. So it's also sort of validation of a flood myth. Um, you know, and then the story of Anopeshtesh goes into the uh, Sumerian mythology as, as well. And the other thing about the uh, Two things about uh, uh, other things. One about um, our friend Enkidu. One, he's sort of like a, a jungle man, like he's sort of half beast. So it's almost like nature checking nurture. It's almost like the the earth fighting back against man and the follies of man. It's, it's almost like Godzilla. Um, now, now Enkidu does lose, but barely. It's like the first time the thing in the Hulk fought in Marvel Comics. It was a close fight. The Hulk won, but they ended up with mutual respect. It's like wrestling. When you have a best of seven, 
you know, contest in them. And one guy wins the seventh match, but they end up becoming a tag team. These guys became best friends. It's actually it's actually beautiful, trite, and, and lovely all at the same time. Uh, and then Gilgamesh, one thing for those of you who know my obsession with the Anunnaki and the Watchers and then the Philem and all that. Well, our friend Gilgamesh was two-thirds divine and one-third magic. So uh, he had some uh, god blood in him somewhere in there and, and either a, a magi or a sorceress. Most of the magicians back then, most, not all, were considered witches. So chances on her, his mother's side somewhere, you guys can figure out the, the, the genetics of it, how you get two-thirds and one-third and how many generations need to interbreed for that. That's, that's beyond my skill set. Um, but yeah, two-thirds divine and uh, one-third magic. Uh, so there you go. Um, but uh, yeah, so those are those are just some interesting little points I wanted to throw out there, which longtime listeners have certainly heard, but new listeners um, may not have. And maybe you want to check out other uh, episodes uh, to hear about the Anunnaki and things like that, which we get into more often than I would like. So, <laughs> so, so I, I don't even I don't know what that is. Uh, oh my goodness! Well, you know what, Derek? I don't want to. I, I don't want to. Yeah, you're gonna have. And the the good and the bad of it is that the Anunnaki come out come up about a million times. Uh, sometimes on purpose, other times by accident. Sometimes because of a deal. Because somebody said I was gonna do one show, I flaked out. I didn't do the research, but I know about this. Let's talk about this. I'm like, fine, I'll do it as a bonus episode. Talk about the Anunnaki again. Um, anyway. Since I'm, it's like a running joke. Every every show I find a way to babble about the Anunnaki. But look into the Anunnaki. Look into the Watchers, uh, because I think you will find that stuff interesting. The Watchers is like the Book of Enoch, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and stuff like that. So I'm, I'm giving you a little bit of semi homework if you choose that mission. But yeah, let us continue with your exposition because this is this is the the Midnight Myth. This is no, this is Derek Jones. This is this is going solo, folks. So this, I know, right? Yeah, this it's is risky to not have my partner in crime. That's right. You you are you are the Shawn Michaels. She's the the Marty Jannetty today. You probably are too smart to know what that means. So, um, let's, but, <laughs> but, uh, Shawn Michaels were a wrestler, right? Right, but he was originally in a tag team with a guy named Marty Jannetty. They were called the Rockers. And one of the most famous turns in wrestling history is when Shawn Michaels surprise super kicked Marty Jannetty right through the Brutus the Barbershop barbershop window. And so, and Shawn Michaels went on to be something that you, a non-wrestling fan, still knows a wrestler who's now 56 and, you know, basically long retired, but has no idea who Marty Jannetty is, who still somehow manages to wrestle on the indies and does and has other bizarre behavior traits. But um, anyway, so people say one is the Sean, one's the Janetti. So today you are the Sean. That's awesome. So today I am the Sean. I, I will I will wear that with honor. I always find, I, I don't watch wrestling, but I do find wrestling and wrestling culture pretty fascinating. And, you know, I think it's, it is such a unique and weird thing it is that, that people do and that they love it so much. And I like, I respect fandom of all different types. You know, just so like I'm not a fan of wrestling, but the passion that people have for this, and I do think it's an art form. You know, it's a, sure. it's a business. <laughs> it's an art form. It's athletics. It's drama. It's got so many things. It's everything. It's costumes. You know, it, it's a awesome, weird thing that I um, I have nothing but love and respect for. It's also one of the few forms of entertainment that people legitimately fans legitimately hate watch. 
Like they'll yeah. watch things just to complain about it. Like you might be a Cleveland Browns fan and your team might stink for gen- for decades and you'll watch and you'll make fun of them, whatever. But, but when they're good, you're thrilled. It's like, it's not like you're happy that they're bad. It's just, that's your team. That's your city. No wrestling fans will watch wrestling just to hate watch it. And, and trust me, I know this because I'm one of them. I, I, I am one of the most guilty parties of that. Um, so there you go. Anyway, we went on a wrestling aside. Uh, those of you who don't care about wrestling, it's fine. Those of you who, but, you know, maybe you're like Derek. Maybe you're like, you know, it's interesting. It's a fandom. Uh, but there are simple lessons in life that you can learn from wrestling, especially the most important one, that everything is resolved only by violence. So there you go. There you, <laughs> there you go, kids. <laughs> but, you know, I think if I could circle back to Gilgamesh, one of the yeah. things that I think is interesting about the Enkidu character in it so Enkidu is like a beast man. He is made literally from nature, and he is completely wild. He lives out in the woods. He hunts. He eats raw meat. He is not civilized at all until he meets a woman who has sex with him. Yeah. I forget I forget the name of the woman, but the act of having sex with a woman, I believe if I recall correctly, she is described, at least translated into English, as a prostitute. Um, but internet, you know, hold my feet to the fire if that's not 100% accurate. But he has sex with this woman, and it's from there that he learns clothes, and it's there that she teaches him cooked food, and it is the act of having love with a woman that tames him, that draws him into civilization. I've always thought that was unique. She may or may not have been a prostitute the way you think of it, we, we think of it now, but a lot of words in the ancient times have over millennia been translated into prostitute, including consort and, and you know, anything like short of wife in, 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 in some form. The other thing about, about Enkidu is that originally he has no interest in this task. He's like, everyone's like, come save us. And he's like, nah, I don't care. And he goes, he goes off into the, into the forest jungle. I looked it up. There actually is no technical difference between a forest and a jungle. And he goes and he chooses to live among the wild, basically in a, in a sort of a, Edenic paradise, sort of. He drinks water, you know, like a like a tiger on hunched down and licks it up. He hunts for his own food and whatever. He wants nothing to do with the humans again. And I guess either someone figures it out or or this woman figures it out herself. And and there you go. Yeah, he's like, well, this is good. Maybe maybe there's something good about humans after all. I I, I couldn't do this with with uh with the does and and the she bears or whatever was hanging out in you know ancient. Uruk. Um so yeah, it is, it is. He had to be coaxed in, in into this job. Um so yeah, back to you, sir. Yeah, and it's the you know, so many myths and stories, legends, folklore deal with the demarcation between the civilized and the wild. Or sometimes they'll do the demarcation between the non spirit and spirit realm. And those can sometimes flip, you know, so where it's civilized there are not spirits, where it's uncivilized there are spirits. Um, and Enkidu needs to be meets a woman to introduce him out of the wild to demarcate him into civilized. And once he becomes a civilized being, then he has a duty to try to check the the tyrant and the uh, authoritarian that is Gilgamesh. And I always felt that that was an interesting commentary on ancient manhood. Us men were just wild beasts until women tame us, and it is we need women to like check our just absolute urge to just rip our shirts off and you know live in the woods and hunt with our you know bare hands and um and i think it's interesting how Gil- or how enkidu needs to be initiated 
And so many stories, uh, Joseph Campbell talks about this in A Hero of a Thousand Faces, have to do with initiation rituals so that you can become the hero. And I always thought it was funny that Inkadu's initiation is having sex with a woman. Yeah, there, there are and, worse initiations, uh, I, I suppose. Um, yeah, and there's a lot of duality in, in the ancient world, and there still is, but there's a lot where you have a lot of twins who are also married to each other, but, you know, almost like they're, they, you know, they sort of have the, the yin and yang thing going on where one is a little bit darker than the other, but there's a little bit of light in them, and one is a little bit lighter than the other, or a lot lighter than the other, but there's a little darker. Like, no one's exactly perfect, but there's, they, they, between the two, they saw it sort of balance each other out. Um, so this is sort of that except it's two guys except before you get to two guys you had to get to the 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 absolute what would be he be an id man or would be he be an ego man i i forget my freud Uh, i think he would be an he would be an id man i think you're right and And then as he then uh has sex with a woman then he i would become an ego man i would say i would say Yeah. yeah i think you're right about that i again i always get them because Ego meant something different in Freud than, than we think of it, uh, but it yeah. is more like your selfish stuff um, or your impulse. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so so basically, it took the two to get Inkadu to to you know get sort of uh, say yes, I will become the protector uh, of the people to humble sort of the protector of the realm to actually become the protector of the realm. But but even in his protector role, he's, he still wants to sort of live forever until he doesn't. And accepts his mortality. Another thing to cycle back with is the flood myth. And this is something that is all over the ancient Near East. And we can think of, if you think of the the Bible as part of ancient Near East myth, the Old Testament, um, there are plenty of stories of people being bad, people not being good to the gods or God, them being ticked off and them flooding and killing everybody and everyone surviving on a boat. And one of the biggest reasons people suspect now that that is so uh, prevalent, that story has held for so long, if you look at a map of the ancient Near East, if you look at every city-state, all of them are next to rivers. Right. And a flood of a river is a serious event. There are probably cities and towns, villages, um, entire peoples that got swallowed up by floods due to bad climate or you know excessive rains. And so you're living under the constant fear that perchance the river might rise and wipe you all off the map. And that's one of the reasons why these stories, at least we suspect now that these stories are so prevalent that they exist both in Gilgamesh and it exists also in the Bible. Also in Greek mythology, Um, your favorite, another uh, semi, semi divine being, uh, what was it? uh, Prometheus had a son or a grandson, Duclean, something like that. And it's, it's almost the oh. same story. It's like you have a Titan who's a pre-god, um, you know, pre-Olympian, but he joined the Olympians, uh, although Zeus has a, has a love-hate relationship with him, which is a different story altogether, uh, mostly about bringing the fire to humans because Zeus didn't want humans to get... I mean, it's very Babylonian. It's very Sumerian in some ways. We don't really want the humans to, to get too full of themselves. Um, and, uh, and, and same thing, a flood, but uh, he, he, he tells... Is it Duclean? Is it? Is... I'd have to check with Laurel. So she's the Greek mythology expert. Okay. I am like, I'm like Greek mythology 
101. I, I like okay. it. I've studied it here and there. She's the one that is like super deep into it. Well, we won't harp on it, but but I think it's during what they call the Bronze Age of the Greeks, which is before the Age of Heroes, which is before, I mean, there's a Silver Age, which nobody quite understands. And then there's the Golden Age, which is what you think of, you know, it start, sort of starts with Homer and, and into, you know, and then, then you get into, I guess, the Iron Age or whatever. The, the, you, or you get into the regular Bronze Age, but it's it's different than the, the Bronze Age of the Greeks. Anyway, um, let's just call him Duclean. It's probably not the right name, but it's basically the same story. He builds, he builds a, basically an arc, a, a big square ship, and he gets certain people in and survives the flood and repopulates uh, the earth. That, that, and so you have it in, in the Greek, though it's not as well known. Um, I think the one in, in Sumerian or Gilgamesh, pre-Sumerian, isn't, which is also Babylonian-ish, isn't really well known, but is getting better known. But everybody knows Noah. But there's, there's flood myths everywhere. Yeah, there's flood myths everywhere is, is, is just the point. But even in, in you know, back then would have been, you know, uh, you know, hundreds of miles is, you know, might, might as well be thousands of miles. Um, oh, Eric, are you there? There you are. Can you hear me? I can. You're back. Luckily enough for you, you were you were. I was babbling the whole time while while you were frozen, and I noticed that you were frozen. Uh, so say that. I was just pointing out that there are, there are flood myths, you know, in this region, which you know now seems relatively close to one another, but back then might have been the entire entirety of the known world to to those folks. But anyway, we've got a Greek one. Us, we'll just call it Sumerian and biblical, which you know is depending on who you're talking to is somewhere between Turkey and Egypt. And, you know, I think, and so I think there's two really good lessons I take from seeing some of the similarities that I think people misunderstand about the ancient world and hence about ancient myth. One, these cultures talked to each other. They traded, they communicated with each other. There are um, Roman ruins in ancient China, in China. So the Romans at one point went so far as to China. So to think of the ancient world as primitive, with isolated people that could never talk to each other is just wrong. There's so much evidence that they communicate. And when you communicate with other people, you bring your culture, you bring your language, you bring your stories. In the ancient world, you don't have iPhones to entertain you. So people are going to sit around in a tavern and they're going to tell each other stories. And there's going to be community exchange and cultural exchange through the telling of stories. In the ancient world, if you go to a place and there's a religious festival for a god that you may not know, you're expected to go and participate in that festival. It would be rude of you if you're visiting uh, ancient Babylon and they're doing the celebration of Marduk and you're an ancient Greek, it would be rude of you to not participate in the celebration of Marduk. So a little bit of the Babylonian is going to make its way into the Greek and vice versa. And then lastly, the heart of why I think mythopoetic thinking is worthwhile, worth studying, worth learning about is people are trying to make sense of the anxieties and stresses of the ancient world where excessive rainfall and flood is a really big hazard. Even to date, we don't control the weather and it's a big hazard, but in the ancient world, there's no stores of grain. If the crop gets wiped off, you starve for the winter. And those anxieties and those stresses get passed into the stories that tell us, hey, there are natural forces that are can work against us. And the best thing we think as ancient people that we can do to control that is be good people. You know, and we think be good people, follow the gods, do your religious rituals, because these forces that we don't understand 
could destroy us. And I think that is a valuable lesson when we look back at that, rather than to say, oh, these flood myths, they're all BS. You know, of course they all have them because they're primitive people that lived by water. It's like, no, you know what? If we lived in that time, we would be doing it too. Right. You know, because that is the way knowledge was transmitted through the mythopoetic epistemology. And so I don't look down on it. You know, if you've ever read, have you ever read Hero of a Thousand Faces by Joseph Campbell? I have. One of the things he says in it that I think is so illuminating about myth and myth making, and granted, he's not commenting on mythopoetic epistemologies, but I think it ties into our conversation, is that there is a difference between a symbolic truth and a literal truth. Myths deal with the symbolic truths, but that doesn't make them false. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make them completely erroneous. And we use the term myth so derogatory today. Oh, well, it's a myth that hats will make you go bald, as if it's a lie to say that hats can make you go bald. That's just a myth that blah, blah, blah. And in reality, I have always found through learning about this, I've reframed that to be like myths are powerful stories that we tell each other about each other and that they are worthwhile, they're worth interrogating and not just outright dismissing because there are symbolic truths baked into the myth. Campbell uses the story of the stork and how we tell children that the stork is where kids come from. So you have a kid, you have another kid, says, where do babies come from? And you say the stork. That is a symbolic truth. You're not actually lying to the child. You know, there is a process by which a baby gets born, but you're at a point where you don't think it's the right idea to tell a two-year-old, you know, how babies are actually made. So you create a myth to convey that truth to them, and that myth would be the stork. And I think the flood myth is one that is very much worth interrogating and kind of lines up nice, neat, nice and neatly. No, do I think literally any of these things happen? Absolutely not, but they're worth learning about. One of the nice little synergies that I think you just stumbled into is the actual stork myth that exists now because the stork myth comes from a myth. There's actually a myth and it's actually sort of, folks, Turner, you should, you should look into it yourself. There's YouTube on it that's probably like 10 or 15 minutes long. And it, like a lot of myths, especially, you know, it starts as something darker and it's turned into something positive. Um, so there, there you go. There's a there's a myth about the stork, and we we still use that expression. Today. And by the way, like there, the, you know, again, this is we're recording August sixth. Recently, there were uh, big floods in Kentucky, which also parts of Indiana, West Virginia, etc. And you hear the people interviewed, and, and you know, a lot of them go, "Thank God they spared me," or "Why did God do this?" Now, I don't know how many of those folks are using that just as you know figures of speech expressions or how many of them believe you know believe it deeply and i'm not casting the judgment putting a value on either just pointing out that that would be the same type of mythic thought that there's a cause and effect um that something bad happened because of god or that you were spared or or you know you're counting your blessings because of god and it, it it's really the same so I, I don't know why anyone would look down on the on the ancient peoples um because it happens today and and like you know uh, listen uh, we're both coastal elites right you feel very elite right yeah, yeah. Uh, you know I've never really felt too elite but I guess technically I am a coastal elite yeah yeah no I feel very elite uh, all the time um <laughs> so, good to know. Uh, yeah but uh, you know even if you hear about someone and they're you know they you know their health is 
you know, good or they had bad health and they had a good treatment, you know, the first reaction I get from nine out of 10 people I speak to is, thank God, you know, and again, is it an expression or do they believe it? I don't really know. I don't, I don't, who asked that question? Not me. Um, but, uh, you know, there it is. It's, it's, it's really the same. Uh, I have to believe that some of those folks actually believe it, that it, it you know, it comes down to their faith. Um, you know, and, you know, I, I, you know, I'm not sure why we value monotheism so much more than others. That's for others to answer that question. Okay, people have listened to the show to tell me, will know that I, I don't, I don't think that there's ever been monotheism and there probably never, you know, maybe Akhenaten, I'm not even sure about that, but e even when there's one God, there's always been a, sort of a, a devil. Every Gilgamesh had their Enkidu. Um, so, if you've got another immortal beating who's pretty powerful, uh, you can beat him, but you can't kill him. I mean, isn't that just a, isn't that a second guy? Uh, so, you know, anyway, you know. Anyway. Well, and in Christian thinking, you touched on this at the beginning. There is the idea of, especially in Catholicism, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three different aspects of God, yeah. which feels a little, you know, like three gods, like is our there's three different aspects of the God, then there might be three different gods. And understanding Jesus as both God and man at the same time is certainly a way to put, you know, I think a lot of Christianity is built on rational thought. And a lot of, you know, ancient Christian thinking comes from ancient Neoplatonic thinking and ancient philosophy. And that gets put into a lot of Christianity. So a lot of it's very rational, but you get to the point where, Jesus is man and God at the same time, and that is definitely part of the mythopoetic epistemology. Those are very contradictory things. And then you add in the Holy Ghost, too, and it feels like there are an awesome Catholicism. You have the worship, the veneration, they say, not worship, of saints. That feels like an echo of paganism, different saints that you go to altars, that you pray to, so that you can get an, a positive outcome. This saint will help you cross a river. This saint will help you have a baby. This saint will help you when you're sick. That also feels very pagany to me as well. Well, let's talk about the Trinity for a second, not in the form of Christianity, but you, you know, in some of other mythologies, because in the Trinity, you, you have the, the Stygian witches, three of them. You have the Norns or the Fates, three of them. So your sources of wisdom, you know, even when the gods wanted answers, they went to they went to a trinity. Now they they tended to be feminized, and I'm sure that there are experts out there that can point to many other they were uh, masculine or sexless whatsoever. But even in Christianity, I mean, depending on who you listen to, there's like nine levels of angels, nine choirs of angels. I, you know, I'm not sure if that's exactly right or not, but you have your demigods and your uh, sons of Adam, uh, you know, with the daughters of I'm sorry, sons of God with the daughters of Adam. It may have created the Nephilim, which if they're not demigods, I don't know what are. Uh, and like in Greek mythology, some of the demigods turned out to be heroes and some of the demigods turned out to be cyclopses, monsters, you know. So, uh, you know, it's, I don't know, I would just say it's sort of all the same. And I, I'm not sure I'm working on a new theory, which of course I'm, I'm not a scholar, so I'll never be able to verify it. And it's probably impossible to verify something that likely predates any sort of history period. Uh, but I'm starting to think that maybe it, it follows 
the language, the root language, whatever the first language that, that formed the Indo-European languages, that whatever those peoples were, whatever their stories were, sort of survived. And, and like a game of operator or like oral tradition, they, they sort of changed regionally or, or to adapt to whatever the needs were. If you were in a drier land, that you focus more on, you know, your water god was really important. Uh, if you had more infant mortality, maybe your, your fertility god was more important. If you were in a land of abundance, maybe things like dance and wine became, you know, more important, your, your, neo, your nihilistic gods. But uh, anyway, that, that, that's sort of my um, primitive, no pun intended, uh, uh, thought process theory of, of the week. So Jeff's theory of the week. Um, yeah, I, I, I absolutely love it. We've all, we've all gazed up at the stars. We've all looked at misfortune or evil or problems that we have had. And we've all looked at the joys and triumphs of being alive. And we've all wondered why. Why is it here? How did it happen? And we don't have the answers to those big questions still. And mythopoetic thought is always going to be a way for us to figure that out, to fill in the gaps of what we don't know. So we no longer look at the sun and think it's a god and we need to you know, kill an animal or it won't show up tomorrow. But we haven't gotten that much more advanced. Our toys are better, our comforts are better. Mm -hmm. But in terms of how we think and what we actually know about the universe, we're still as clueless as the ancients in many ways. And more knowledge leads to more questions. And I think that's why mythopoetic thought is so important, because we're always going to, to not know. So if a flood happens and you don't know if you lived, it's a very common thing to say, as you said, thank God, whether that's literal, whether it's symbolic, however you mean it. You have to put that gratitude and that anxiety of not knowing why this happened to you somewhere because right. it's not just going to go away. And I think mythopoetic thinking exists. And I think we invented that as a species because we needed it. And I think we still need it today. Yeah. And there's that fantastic chicken and egg thing about, you know, and astrology plays a large role in this. And I don't just mean astrology like, oh, well, you're a Scorpio, so you're grumpy, um, you know, or, or paranoid which I'm a Scorpio, so I'm allowed to say those things, and that's 100% true. Um, but, uh, you know, I, 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 you know, in my, I'll call them studies, doing the show for two and a half years now, you know, and talking to, you know, it's studies, it's a different kind of study, but it's studies. Um, I've talked to astrologers and people who don't call themselves astrologers, but there's a chicken and egg thing, is are the stories written in the stars, did they write the stories down here so as above as below or did the the people down here did we look at the stars and sort of form what we wanted to see uh have it follow an easy path the path of the sun and and sort of write the stories to factor into that but um i, I just did a interview uh, and again uh, you know forgive me audience because i never know when i'm going to drop shows and i am in a stockpiling of shows phase again uh, again uh, too successful in booking which i will which is a great problem um but a guy named robert phoenix who's a uh, uh I, forgot, I forgot what he called he, he made up the term himself which which is fine it's i think that's awesome he's the second guest i've had who's made up the their own term for what they did but it was basically uh like an astro mythicist i think it was called um and he explained some things to me um that made some amount of sense that, 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 that when a certain star left the constellation of Virgo and passed into the constellation of Aries, 
that that sort of explains sort of the demasculinity, uh, you know, the whole toxic masculinity thing. The, 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 yeah, the, 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 the traits traditionally, you know, considered manly and kingly and regal uh, in the lion have now been influenced by Virgo, which the traits are completely different. Listen, I, I don't know what's what, and I, and I don't know if that's just a convenient interpretation, or not, but, but it's fascinating. And the human ingenuity to come up with things like that or to read it, if that's, you know, and or to correctly interpret it. I don't know which is which. Again, I don't know what's the chicken and the egg, but it, it's amazing and it all fits together. And if you follow any sort of mythology, um, it, it it's weird how many of these things actually do fit together with astrology, which is not really weird when you think about that's how you measure time. That's how you measure the seasons. Uh, I mean, you, you know, uh, it, it's it, it's not just about leaves falling and more rain flowing. That that was that that's that was a way that you sort of always knew what season you were in, where wherever you were, no matter how dark it was, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, I don't know. That that's something I'm, I'm going to try to delve more into again with people who know what they're talking about, um, even if what they know what they're talking about. If you, the audience, thinks it's fiction, it's still it's still interesting and, and background because the more you understand, the more you understand, but also the more you realize how little you understand. But the the one of the points is, I think, going back to what you were uh, saying earlier, that this the ancients in a lot of ways were ahead of us with cosmology and knowing understanding the universe. Um, and we're sort of catching up to them in a lot of ways now. Now, I mean, the web telescope is probably putting us ahead, but a lot of these ethical things, a lot of these poetic mysticisms, um, like dimensions and, and things like that. Well, now, you know, the, the, this isn't something that, that is just exists in the mind of comic book authors. This is what, this is what quantum physics is, is playing with now. So, you know, science and, and, theology, mysticism, esotericism, it's intersecting more and more. That's that's one of the things I've learned in this show. And and I, I'm not I don't I'm not a believer. You know, I'm 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 sort of an atheist, but I know I I, I have learned to look down I don't look down at all on religion writ large, your your term, my term too. Um, just because I see how much science and spirituality validate each other if you care to look wow that was sort of a long exposition well and we're used to and and but i love that point because we're used to thinking okay there's this neat thing called science there's this nice little thing called religion then there's this thing called history and we put knowledge into these nice neat little boxes and we say okay if you study this you do this if you study that you do that but life is a little messier than that yeah you know your point about astrology well we wouldn't have modern astronomy if we didn't have ancient astrology because ancient astrology became modern astronomy people studying the stars wanting to know what they were how they worked how they impacted us it's important to note newton who came up with the laws of motion one of the greatest scientists who ever lived was a mystic he was trying to unravel the mysteries of the divine through science another really good example is medieval alchemy Medieval alchemy, we looked down at it, you can't turn lead into gold, that's stupid. That led to chemistry. Mm -hmm. The alchemists were the ones that laid the groundwork and the studies that they did that led us to chemistry. 
And the whole idea of is in magic and science, they are two sides of a similar coin to me. You want to understand the secrets and mysteries of the universe. So you study how things work so you can manipulate them and so that you can make life better. That's the role of an alchemist as it is the role of a geneticist. And so the idea that these things are so completely different and they don't overlap, I think is fundamentally wrong, which is why I wanted to talk about mythopoetic and why I love it because we need, we need this part of it too. And we owe a debt to that thinking that helped us get to here. So I don't think it's fair to say, so I, I personally don't believe, uh Oh, did I freeze again? Yep. You're doing fine. Okay, cool. I, my video froze here. So I don't personally believe that where a star is when I'm born will determine my personality. But I believe it was necessary for people to study the stars for us to understand our place in the universe. Part of our place in the universe is, how did I become who I am? And astrology is trying to answer that in the same way that philosophy, psychology, sociology are. So I don't think it's, it's fair to dismiss them, even if we, I don't think they're literally true. But I don't think astrology is literally true. But I tell anyone that I'm the most tourist of tourists out, uh, tourists of tourists out there. Right. You know, there's the, all the person that's the most right in every room is me. And why? Why? Because I'm a Taurus. Right. But I will happily tell you, I don't think it's real. Even when you're that, a tourist. Even when I'm a tourist, yeah. yeah. And so that that contradiction is at the heart of mythopoetic thinking, and it's at the heart of what I think it means to be a, a human being. All right. right now, cartoon cartoon brain Jeff is picturing you on a tour with a tour guide and saying, you know, you're wrong about that. <laughs> That's not what the Sphinx means at all. <laughs> I, I try very hard not to be that guy, but I am definitely that guy. <laughs> so, so, so you need the guy from the progressive commercials teaching you not to become your parents. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Nobody's I, interested in what you have to say. They're listening to him. Take the fanny pack. Leave it at all. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, you know, another one that people get really annoyed is when I say, hey, guys, you know, there's no such thing as ghosts. And that gets people so angry. There's absolutely such a thing as ghosts. I'm sorry. You're, 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 you're out of your mind there. It's completely ghosts. Totally, totally, 100%. I think they're symbolically true. Okay. That, that, that's fine. <laughs> in, in other words, the, yours hit you over the head with a symbol, that the musical instrument, the symbol that is... That, that's funny. I do play the drums, so that well, might have happened. Oh, there you go. Watch out. If you ever hear the cymbals, you, that's a symbol. It's a, that's a signal. The symbol signal. All right, I got to stop this. <laughs> this this lame onomatopoeia theme. Um, yeah, this is not Garden of, of Bad Puns. Uh, sometimes it is. Um, well, I think I understand what mythic poetry is now. Yeah. That, that's that's amazing. Great. Yeah. yeah. What, what else did you want to talk about today? Honestly, that's pretty much it. I mean, wow. I could go on and on and on about this all day long, um, but that's really the gist of it. It blew me away when I heard about it in college and got really into it and really um, read a handful of books. There's a ton out there on it. You can read books on the mythopoetic thought structures of Tolkien, if Lord of the Rings is your thing. You can read books about anthropologists thinking that it's the worst thing that humans have ever done is invent this knowledge system. I guess the last thing I think worth saying, this term is something that was invented in the 20th century and it's used going backward. No one in the ancient world went around saying, I participate in mythopoetic thought structure. Right. 
I think it's worth remembering that so much of what we know of history is how we talk about it and us putting that into the past rather than the past telling us this. And that kind of contradiction is worth cautioning when you study these things just to be mindful of, okay, this is how we see it now. And it may not be completely accurate to say that's how it was seen by those who lived in that time. I cannot imagine that somebody with this passion, this level of knowledge in this area, such as yourself, has not undertaken to compare and contrast the mythic, poetic, almost diametrically opposed views of Tolkien versus Lewis. Because, I mean, the Chronicles of Narnia and the Lord of the Rings uh, books, while they're so similar in, in so many ways, are very different in a lot of ways. Have have you done that? And, and if so, when will it become your next podcast? So I am a huge, huge, huge fan of Tolkien. I have never read The Chronicles of Narnia. It's not easy reading. It's very heavy British. Like, I read these as a child, and when I tried to read them to my kids, I couldn't get past the first page. I'm like... I cannot believe I read this as a kid. I cannot believe I understood it as a kid. I cannot believe when I saw the movie. I'm like, hey, let's watch the movies instead. How's that sound? Yay! You know, and then my you know, my ex-wife, my wife then, obviously, was like, you're supposed to read it. I'm like, you try reading this. <laughs> I mean, the, you know, meanwhile, Lord of the Rings is very readable. In fact, it's I mean, they're like 300-page books. It's a, it's a pleasure. But all right, well, maybe, maybe you should. But there's also, uh, how about Game of Thrones? Did you, because the, the there's sort of, I mean, again, similar-ish, but very, very different in, in a lot of ways. I mean, I, I find strange things fascinating about Game of Thrones. I mean, I, I, I love Game of Thrones when I watch it. And then I watched it again through and through recently, and I and I, the last season with the with the original writers was a little bit rough, and then I think they left, and you know I noticed very different, and some things I liked, some things I didn't like. I didn't realize what a change it, it was. You know, in the early seasons, like every scene mattered, every word mattered. There there were things that you'd hear in, in you know, uh, what you thought was a throwaway conversation in episode three, that season two, episode six became extraordinarily important. That 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 didn't really happen afterwards. Um, but uh, some of the things that I found were very interesting was that after 10,000 years, they actually went backwards in technology. Um, I mean, the only thing was, that was new that seemed to be like there was this god of fire kind of thing, the, the, the red god with the, this own kind of magic and and basically, you know, uh, you know, Mayan-esque, you know, sacrifice kind of thing. Um, but the steel went backwards, you know, the, the their knowledge went backwards. It's like they devolved over the millennia. Um, and I'm not sure that didn't really also happen in Tolkien. There, was, there wasn't really a lot of technological advancement, with the exception of like being able to breed, you know, orcs and goblins to make them daywalkers, basically. Um, right, right. But I don't know. Did you ever have you ever done a compare and contrast uh, mythic poetry of uh, Tolkien the Game of Thrones, or just either one individually? So we did in the Midnight Myth. We did a few episodes on the movies of the Lord of the Rings. And then we did um, a reread and discussion of the Lord of the Rings books. So those are out there. Our cool. thoughts are in there at the Midnight Myth podcast. We have done a lot of episodes on Game of Thrones. 
the final season, we did a bonus episode on each episode. So we broke down each one and discussed it. Um, you know, this idea of things going backwards is a trope that comes out of the fall of the Western Roman Empire and the emergence of medieval Europe. And the idea that took root starting in the seeds that would become the Italian Renaissance, that there was something fundamentally wrong and not correct and backwards about the medieval world compared to the Roman world, that the Roman world was this great, better, amazing world, and that when it fell, this new medieval world was not as good. And we have to recapture the spirit of ancient Rome. This is very prevalent in Game of Thrones in the fall of the Valeria, mm -hmm. which was this great empire. It was technologically advanced. They, they had dragons. They had Valerian steel. They were just the, the creme de la creme society. And when that collapsed and fell, then comes Essos and Westeros, and they're just not as good. They're backward. They're not as progressive. Current you know, historical discourse... With, with Mongols ages, at their doorsteps. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like a lot, a lot of medievalists now challenge that and, and don't really take that view. It, but that view... And that's why it affects fantasy because so much of fantasy is set in a, you know, mythic, you know, medieval European kind of world. And, um, you know, there's a lot of people that say, you know, because these folks that went on to become the Italian Renaissance absolutely looked negatively on the medieval world, that purview predominates. But there was a lot of interesting human development that happened. Not all of it was in Western Europe. You know, but sure. <laughs> um, a lot of it was happening in the, the Near East and North Africa in these really complicated and very sophisticated Islamic caliphates. And medieval Europe became a very sophisticated place that laid the groundwork for the world we have now. And so um, this idea of you're living in a period of decay and the past was this golden age is something that starts there. It hits fantasy because of that. Tolkien has that too. They, they're in the Middle Age. You know, they're in the, they call it the Third Age in Tolkien and out of the end of the story ushers in the new Fourth Age with the return of the king and they're finally now back to where they were but things bad in the middle, you know, the Third Age. Um, and Martin plays in that trope as well. And it's a really powerful story that Europeans tell about themselves that beat themselves up and make themselves sound not as important and I think the Middle Ages gets a bad rap. It's where we get the term Dark Ages from. Right. And that term Dark Ages really takes hold in the late Middle Ages, early Renaissance, when they're talking about themselves. Right? No, this is, we need to do something because this time period we're living in is really bad. And um, I don't necessarily think, there's not a lot of medieval historians currently that hold that view, the Dark Age view. They really do refute it. Um, and I think there'd be an interesting place for a fantasy story that isn't about being wedged between this great thing called, you know, this ancient empire and this thing that's about to come called this renaissance that takes place in the middle where everyone's backward and people are burning witches. You know, if you look at ancient history, none of us want to go back and live in ancient Rome. They weren't free. Right. You know, like a Roman uh, governor if he didn't like you, could chop off your hands. There's no check and balances just because he didn't like the way you looked at him. There was mass, mass enslavement you know, in the ancient world. And that was how the economy worked. So these aren't free and fair places. So I think 
as much as I love ancient history, you know, I think that that particular myth that you talk about, it really comes, in my view, from that that kind of discourse that comes from the Renaissance that shaped medieval history for a really long time. Like, so medieval historians now are starting to say, that's not the right way to look at it. You know, maybe the last 25 years, but before then it was just like, yeah, the medieval period was one of the worst eras of human history. And I just don't know. It's a, it's an interesting thought. Yeah. Well, like the great philosopher Billy Joel said, the good old days weren't always good. And uh, tomorrow ain't as bad as it seems. I'm not sure about the second part, but the good old days weren't always good. And, and you know, and that that's as true now as it was back when people were calling the dark ages dark, except for that one year where the world actually was dark. Um, I, I, I can't remember what, I think it was like a, a meteorite hit or something. And then like, there was like, like a short term nuclear winter, like a minor ice age, like in like 516 AD or something like that. Um, yeah, there was, I know there was a time in, I want to say that it, um, 1900s or early late 1800s where there was a dark, there was a massive volcano and there was just a dark summer where, there was this huge volcanic cloud right over Europe. I think it might have been Mount Vesuvius that erupted I, again. Oh, Vesuvius! Yeah. I, it might yeah. have been. It might have been the Tunguska um, uh, meteorite uh, collision in, in Ruski in Siberia. Yeah, in Tungusta. I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure. I, I'm, there, I'm sure there are times I did know this and then it immediately slipped out of my head. But so speaking about going backwards, it looks like I have to go backwards into mid my Midnight Myth shows and not just listen to the shows when I first subscribed forward. I got to go back and do some listening. So uh, I would definitely recommend to the audience that, that you do so. It's very entertaining, very smart. Uh, and very organized, and almost no meanderings. Almost no meanderings. The, now, listen, I don't apologize for meanderings. That's what the Garden of Doom is about. It's a garden. The, the, the trails sometimes double back on themselves, and sometimes you fall into a tiger pit, and sometimes there's not even a tiger in the tiger pit. Sometimes there's three. You know, it's just it's just the way that it goes. Uh, sometimes you go underground. Sometimes you climb the trees. I'm, I'm just saying. Um, you know, so... Anyway, I thank you so much for, for your time and illuminating us on this. And I think it's important to try to adapt some of these thoughts into our analysis of really everything. You know, it doesn't need to be in, in the four, just needs to be sort of part of your automatic processing of information, which is slowly where I'm getting, but I'm in my mid fifties. So if it can happen to me, chances are most of my listeners are younger than that. So you're, you're more adaptive than I am. Please tell them about all of your shows and Laurel's show as well and the proper names um, and uh, and everything else that you guys are doing. Yeah, absolutely. So we do the Midnight Myth podcast. It's where we talk about history, mythology, and philosophy and how those subjects interplay in popular culture. So we usually take a book, a movie, a TV show, and we talk about how it dives into these subjects, sometimes accidentally, maybe intentionally. Um, we've covered pretty much anything and everything um, there. So whatever type of media you like, there's probably a Midnight Myth episode you'll enjoy. Uh, me and Steve hosted the Wheel of Ka, which is in the Midnight Myth feed. That is um, Steve and I rereading or reading for the first time Stephen King books. It started with us reading The Dark Tower and talking about it. And now we're just diving into Stephen King. We'll be doing an episode on Stephen King's The Stand pretty soon. And then Laurel has Sleep and Sorcery, which is a fantasy and folklore sleep meditation podcast. Um, these are all available wherever you get your podcasts, but Sleep and Sorcery is phenomenal. If you have trouble sleeping, 
you pop it on, you listen to Laurel, and she will talk you right into sleep while <laughs> describing some cool fantasy and folklore. Um, we're all on Twitter at the Midnight Myth. If you're on Twitter and want to talk to us, the Midnight Myth is Laurel. I do not have access to it, which is a good thing because I have a lot of typos. So if you want to talk to me on Twitter, I'm pretty active. It's at DerekJones198. So feel free. Listen to a podcast. Say hi. I just also want to thank you so much for letting me come on here and ramble about ancient history and ancient epistemologies. Some of my favorite subjects. Um, really, really happy to be here. So thanks again, Jeff. No, thank you. I mean, this is, this is the place to ramble about things like this. This is a safe space for the, these kinds of topics. And by the way, not, not to plug myself too much, but I was very happy to be on the Midnight Myth where we did an episode on The Witch. And I, I must say, I think that that was a chef's kiss of a show. Um, so really enjoyed it. And how, how is your Summer of Satan going, by the way? Um, slowly. So my wife and I decided we were going to try to buy a house and that has really made it hard to record. And I regret to say that that, the deal to buy the house blew up at the last minute. So we have not bought a house, but we're going to be doing an episode on the devil's advocate and our plan is to record it today and probably publish it tomorrow. But, uh, we'll, we'll see. We have, we also have a one and a half year old, so all bets are off. Yes, dancing with the devil can be a dangerous game. That is true. Now, listen, you're one and a half year old. You've said his name on the show before, so it's not a secret, and it's Arthur. I never asked, is it because of King Arthur? Yep, my wife is a bona fide King Arthur enthusiast. She absolutely loves the Arthurian legend, and that was the inspiration for his first name, which is Arthur. His middle name is Roland, which is the name of the main character of the Dark Dark Tower. Tower, yes. Yep. So when we and the character Roland in the Dark Tower is technically a descendant of King Arthur. Right. So he's kind of Arthur Arthur or Roland Roland. There you go. Yeah. Roland, Roland, Roland. Uh, yeah. And she has at least theoretically agreed at some point to come on this show and talk about King Arthur, which is going to be interesting because I have some other people talking about King Arthur. And I have a feeling that their takes on it are going to be very different than hers, which is more than welcome here. Anyway, uh, I don't want to get in your way of doing your show today. I, I certainly hope that you get that, get to do that. I hope that Arthur allows that uh, because kings can be demanding, as, as you know. Um, and while they can't cut off your hands these days, babies have their own way of making their needs and wants known. Um, so I wish you luck in that, and I wish me luck in listening to it tomorrow or Monday. Uh, I thank you again, and we're definitely going to keep in touch, and I'm going to keep on Laurel about that, and I'm looking forward to more of the Summer of Satan, and if I might suggest, the the Omen's pretty cool. That's a pretty cool Satan, and you can compare and contrast it with Brightburn, which is sort of a superhero horror movie, which is not a great movie, but there's a great movie in there. Yeah, I know I know what you mean when there is like this, wow, this could have been great, it's sort of there, but it just doesn't crystallize. Right. And I really wish they would be remade by somebody with a budget. And, and again, there's, it's not a great movie. It's not a bad movie, but it, but there is a great movie in there. So anyway, uh, I thank you again. I'm going to leave you to your Saturday. Thanks again. We'll keep in touch. And those folks, hey, rate, review, give me five stars. Rate and review, give them five stars. Actually, all three of their shows. Do it. 
all of us can use your help in the in the independent podcast community. Uh, you got these shows that are backed by corporations and major periodicals and things like that. And I'm sure they think they need money too and then need support, but they don't. And let them write their stuff, you know. Let them sell their books the traditional way, you know. Listen to us. We're great. Uh, anyway, so enough uh, <laughs> enough about that. Thanks so much. Uh, you will hear us again next week on The Garden Doom. And check out Garden Views if, if, if that's your thing. This week I dropped a show on Cannabis Law. Uh, and I'm continuing with uh, my space stuff and, and other things as well. Uh, and uh, I hope to have the other co-founder of the Space Court Foundation on uh, in September. And that might lead to some very cool stuff like people in the aeronautics and satellite industries around the world. So I don't know. Fingers crossed on that one. I'm a little, I don't usually talk about things that might happen on, on Garden of Doom, but I'm a little bit excited about these prospects. So there you have it. And, and, and poor Derek has to sit here and nod quietly while I'm doing this. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let him go. I'm going to let all of you go. Thanks for the support. And we'll hear from you next week in the Garden of Doom. And check out Midnight Myth and all of the Ukuntraman. The leaden winter would bring you down forever. But you rode upon a steamer to the violence of the sun. laughing through your fingers and you want to take her with you to the heartland of the winter.